Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And today we have a very special episode brought to you today by Hills. I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Kelly St. Dennis. Dr. St. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Becky. I'm very excited to be here. Well, Hills has been, you know, um, a leader in the urinary tract diet space, we know. And so this conversation is, is one that is in line for sure, I think, when we think of Hills. And that is basically everything feline lower urinary tract disease. But before we jump into our conversation today, Dr. St. Dennis, will you tell us just a little bit about your background and kind of how you ended up being here with us for this conversation today? Sure, Becky. I'm a board certified veterinary cat specialist with the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners. And that goes back to 2013. Prior to that, uh, I worked in general practice with cats and dogs and specifically had some wonderful time in practice with Dr. Susan Little in Ottawa, Canada. And that sort of got me hooked on cat medicine, if you will, and uh, is the reason that I've gotten into feline medicine myself. It's like the Dr. Susan Little, right? I mean, (laughs) she's just a phenomenal lady. And if you, for somehow, you know, in some way, end up in the veterinary industry without passion about cats and meet Dr. Little, you're like coming out on the other side, a a cat vet, right? Absolutely. Yeah, she definitely is an inspiration to all of us and definitely personally inspired me when I worked with her. So, and continues to this day. Oh, I mean, well, so, you know, we know that there are a ton of phenomenal people on the cat side and, and, and Dr. Little is one of them. And, you know, I want to ask you because it's my favorite question for all of my guests before we dive too deep into sort of your, you know, conversation today. It is the one of your history. Are you one who always knew you were going to be a veterinarian or did that come along later in life? I am one of those people who knew from the age of five or six that this is what I wanted to do with my time. Um, It took me a long road to get here. So I was in post-secondary for about 10 years, including a year working in cancer research in downtown Toronto, Canada. Um, So I do have a master's degree as well. Um, But yeah, I finally got there and got into the college and, and the rest, they say, is history. (laughs) Well, I love that. And, and, you know, I think it's really fun to always explore that. You know, I find more of my guests than not have that, you know, I always knew I wanted to be a veterinarian. And that makes me really, I think, love these conversations even more because I'm talking with people who's really, you know, are living out their dream in practicing. And I think that's where that passion really comes through. And for you, you know, it is a passion for felines. And I think, you know, when we say the word cat, or feline, uh, I think the first thing we think about is almost synonymous is feline lower urinary tract disease. Is, is it just me? No, it, it isn't at all, Becky. It's definitely a very common problem. And because it's a common problem and also in some cases can be life-threatening, we've done a really good job of educating cat owners over the last couple of decades about the problem. You know, So people are really aware of urinary tract issues in cats. They know that urinary tract blockage can be life-threatening. They know diets impact that. And they are also starting to be more aware about conditions like feline idiopathic cystitis and how stress can relate to that condition. So it's definitely a common problem in cats, and it's definitely something that owners know a lot about. Yeah, and we're lucky that they do. And when I was thinking about today's podcast and sort of writing out the outline for our conversation, it started to occur to me, 
I think in the veterinary industry, we're almost even jaded to think like it's not a matter of like if, but it's a matter of when they will have some level of urinary issues throughout their lifetime. So I think this conversation is incredibly important for, you know, all areas and levels of veterinary medicine. So I want to kind of really just start out baseline. Let's define feline lower urinary tract disease. Yeah, that's a good plan because over the years, I'd say since I've started in vet medicine and even in the early 90s, this condition has had a number of names and changed faces several times. And I think now what we really do is look at feline lower urinary tract disease as a complex of diseases, right? They have similar clinical signs associated with urination. So those common signs in FLUTD diseases can be difficulty urinating, painful urination, frequent urination, things like house soiling, blood in the urine, and of course, even an inability to urinate. And so the diseases that fall under that umbrella of FLUTD would include things like feline idiopathic cystitis, which is probably the most common cause of FLUTD. We can also see things like urinary tract stones, urethral plugs, and less commonly urinary tract infections. So really all of those things fall under that heading of lower urinary tract disease in cats. I think that's an important kind of area we, to start with because we want to know that we are kind of talking about different wheelhouses, but it it really does have to do with our diagnostic and treatment processes and also I think the conversation we have with our clients. But I guess, you know, before we, we whittle into all of that, one thing I wanted to ask is is really like, have we narrowed down predispositions to experiencing any of these conditions in this this overall umbrella of lower urinary tract disease? I, th- I think we have some really good predisposing factors, uh, particularly we know with with conditions like struvite crystals or struvite stones, we know those are often diet-related for cats. Um, so that's something that we always want to educate our clients about. And then for things like feline idiopathic cystitis or FIC, we do have predisposing factors like young adult cats that are living indoors and particularly cats that live in multi-cat households. We also know that obesity is a predisposing factor for many of the diseases under the umbrella of FLUTD. So, um... I guess the other part then of that is how well owners and then also how well veterinary professionals understand urinary diseases like this. So I guess my point being, I know that a lot of owners sometimes think that their pet has a urinary tract infection when they may be experiencing just an inflammatory process. And I don't mean just an inflammatory process to minimize it, right? Like we all know that's an unpleasant experience no matter who and what and how, and it needs to be addressed, right? But it's it can be difficult to kind of sort out. And so how well do you think the understanding is, I guess, on both sides? I think from a client point of view, there's a lot of misconception that any kind of clinical signs associated with urinary tract are going to be related to urinary tract infection. And, you know, that happens with clinicians as well. It may be that there's some overlap because in the dog world, we know that in Infections actually are directly related with struvite stones in in dogs, but that's not the case in cats. And in the past, when we haven't really known for sure, or maybe we haven't been sending out urine cultures, we would prescribe antibiotics and the cat would get better. But that wasn't actually because the cat had an infection. It is, in fact, because cats with feline idiopathic cystitis have waxing and waning disease. So regardless of what we do with them at the time when they're having an episode, their disease is going to wane and improve. So if there's a coincidental use of antibiotics, 
everybody, including the client and the clinician, might assume that it was the antibiotics that resolved the problem when, in fact, they were just going to get better anyway. Well, I think that's such a good point and an, an important area to, to think about. So kind of how do you work around that? What's the work around there? So within my own practice, I mean, we always try to get a really good history, but we're also making sure that we do a urinalysis and we're analyzing what's going on in that urinary tract. If we think there's evidence of an infection, um, then we are going to send that urine out for culture. So I'm always looking for what bacteria are actually there and what antibiotics do I need to treat it with, as opposed to just automatically prescribing antibiotics. So we're, we're trying to convince owners and owners are really aware of issues with antibiotics in the world. You know, they really do understand that we need to have some answers rather than just putting cats on antibiotics. And a lot of times there are, aren't, an, aren't infections present. So we know that with FLUTD, less than 5% of the lower urinary tract signs are actually caused by infection in an adult younger cats. How much of the inflammatory processes, cystitis effects, do you feel like are directly related to the cat's natural or maybe like unnatural, I guess, uh, maybe even tendency to drink? Like we know that cats don't experience thirst the same way. And I just think about that association. Do you feel like there's an association there? Am I making that up? I don't think you're making that up. I think there really is an association with their level of hydration. So, you know, and I don't know how well this plays out specifically in the literature, but when we have cats that are eating a, an exclusively dry food, they're consuming a very small amount of water in their food, and then they have to turn around and drink water to make up for that in their diet or the lack of that in their diet. And so cats are not very efficient at drinking. And what ensues is a very high concentration urine, which obviously can predispose to things like bladder irritation, so irritation of the bladder lining, and also potentially more of those solutes that are bumping up against one each other and against one another and potentially forming things like struvite crystals and stones. Um, so if we are feeding a cat canned food, they're now consuming their water with their meal, which you think about in the wild when they eat mice and they eat birds, they're actually consuming their water with their meal. So they're much more efficient at taking their water in when they eat as opposed to drinking it. So I do often recommend or do usually recommend that cats eat some canned food. Usually at least 50% of their diet is what we recommend to our clients. Yeah, my cats would recommend that too. <laughs> Actually, they start recommending it twice a day about an hour before they know they're supposed to. Yeah. <laughs> they recommend it highly. You know, but but I, I think, I guess, I make this association in my head and I drive this point a little bit and I want to talk to you more about, I think, like that reoccurrence factor. But before we dive into that reoccurrence factor, it, it stands out to me because I guess when I think about behavioral issues and then obviously with cats, urinary indiscretion right? And going to the bathroom in the house or inappropriate elimination is one of the number one reasons we see relinquishment or cats turned out. And it is really something I think that we need to be conversating with our clients about. And it's really hard, I think, when there isn't an infection to just say like, oh, this is your cat's irritated bladder and it can be, you know, and to say that this isn't something we can immediately resolve. So can you kind of like a speak to that point a little bit and how you educate and encourage uh, clients who maybe are feeling frustration around this? That is a really great point, Becky, because that is something that we encounter so frequently, um, you know, with clients that maybe don't bring their cats to the veterinarian regularly. So I'm not having that opportunity to have this conversation with them in the first place, but maybe their cat's been house soiling for 
a week or months or sometimes even years. And, you know, they all of a sudden just can't stand it anymore. And they, they want that quick fix. And they think there's something that I can do with medication. And I really have to speak with them about the fact that it's a process. And we try not to look at it as inappropriate elimination more than I always say house soiling because where the cat is going in their mind and the cat's mind is completely an appropriate place based on their current emotion and medical state. So we try to get clients wrapping their head around the fact that their cats are not trying to do this deliberately. They're not trying to get back at them, that something is bothering them. And we try to explore what might be the issue, whether it's medical or something in the environment that's distressing the cat or very commonly both things that's really the common thing with cats that house soil. It isn't usually just one thing. There's usually multiple things that are going on and the clients may not even be aware that say their litter box that's beside the washing machine, if the cat's in there when the, you know, the rinse cycle goes on, they, the cat gets frightened and doesn't want to use the box anymore. Yeah, it was, it was sort of in the back of my head as that follow-up question is how much of this, once we rule out that medical side of things and we say, okay, well, there's an irritation and like you said, and or a combination of things going on and and addressing the environment is equally as essential. And maybe even when there is an infection present, right, as well. Because like you said, they may be holding it because they don't want to go into their litter box. There's there's so many environmental factors when it comes to cats. It's like, can you just put a GoPro on your cat and then send me the footage? (laughs) Exactly, right? So we really have to explore those things with our owners. And, you know, uh, I remember my dermatology prof and in, in when I was back in vet college, I was saying with skin stuff, you treat what you see and you see what's left. And a little bit of this applies to our house weathering issues. So we definitely want to work through the process of identifying medical problems, treat those. And at the same time that we're doing, we're anticipating what's going to be left. So we might be then starting to have that conversation with owners about the environment. Are there other cats? Are there dogs? Are there people that are coming and going? Uh, where are your litter boxes? Where's the cat soiling? So it becomes a fairly complex conversation um, with the client that can be very stressful for them, especially if it's been going on for a long time. Yeah. And I, and I guess to that point about, you know, extended duration and then reoccurrence, you know, talk to me a little bit about what we know about reoccurrence. Sometimes I feel like once we have a cat who has issues, it just seems like that cat maybe almost always has issues. Is it because we're not addressing the environment? Is it because medically they're more inclined to reoccur? So I think it's a, it, what we're understanding now is that it's, it is a combination of two things. So if we're sort of focusing down on feline idiopathic cystitis, because that's kind of the most common cause of FLUTD and most of the other things we can deal with medically or with diet, if we focus down on FIC, we can definitely see that there's those two components to the care. Um, so we definitely want to work on that with clients because if we're not focusing on environment as well as trying to reduce the cat's stress generally, um, we're going to have recurrences. And one of the things that we understand about these cats is that they actually have an inability to deal with normal stresses. So things that maybe wouldn't bother a cat that doesn't have FIC is actually something that will continue to agitate the cat that has FIC and their system isn't able to accommodate that level of stress and they start having problems because they can't deal with the stress around them. It's, it seems like a full-on counseling event every time we have cats in the clinic. And then kind of to your point, sometimes it feels like we don't get them in enough to not like have to have these huge conversations. It's just, I'm just sitting here thinking about how it's like we have 15 minutes 
to get diagnostics, great histories, and great education. And it's like... No, it's not happening, right? Right. It's a lot of stuff to cover. So, I mean, if cats are coming in regularly, we have a lot of opportunity to see that information. Whereas when people come in and the problem's currently existing, then then it's a lot more difficult. And uh, they really need to be on board. But you have to... It's, it's very difficult to get clients to understand that their cat is even stressed. I've had people roll their eyes at me so many times when I say, well, actually, you know, your cat is stressed and they, they can't understand how the cat can be stressed. The cat has a home to live in and beds to sleep in and all the food it wants and litter boxes and toys. How can my cat possibly be stressed? So we really have to get people to wrap their heads around that. And that's a real challenge, especially if they're already experiencing the agitation and stress themselves of the cat urinating around their house, right? That's just really frustrating. Yeah, you just have heightened levels of stress and you have to tease that all out on both ends. And it's a it's a lot of work and a lot of follow-up and, and, and client education is, is sounds like, you know, kind of a number one aspect here to be fair to the cats because I know it seems like there's a lot of unfair surrendering and then a lot of unfair behavioral negative reinforcements when the fact of the matter is, is it's, it is environmentally based in a lot of cases. And it makes me kind of wonder as we kind of talk about this association of reoccurrence and maybe the lack of education for clients where things maybe go long-term untreated, do we know if there's any association with chronic lower urinary tract disease in cats and more serious conditions like neoplasia, you know, that things that are associated with chronic irritation or inflammation? So I think that's a really good question. I don't think that we have a lot of data from that perspective at this point. So, you know, cats we know are fairly, I call them inflammatory creatures, and we know that they can get cancers in response to inflammatory events. And, you know, the injection sites or comas are probably a good example of that. But I think when we're dealing with cats with FLUTD or signs of potential bladder neoplasia, that we're really talking about clinical signs related to both as, as opposed to understanding that there's some long-term cause and effect present. So, you know, if a clinician is, is suspicious that a patient has a neoplasia based on their age and sediment, maybe showing neoplastic transitional cells, you know, it may not just be FLUTD, then obviously they need to investigate that further. And I don't think that we really necessarily have a, a link at this time. It might be really hard to document if one does exist. Okay, and I guess when we're talking about doing that great client education, Tell us some of the most important environmental factors that contribute to this condition that we need to be coaching our clients around. Sure. There's so many things that we can talk to clients about, but one of the things I try to stress for owners is that cats are, you know, we always think of them as independent creatures who can deal with whatever, but they're actually very schedule oriented and they don't like change. I'm a lot like a cat. I figure that's why I'm a cat fed. I don't like change and they don't like change. So in their environment, we really want to have some consistency to things like their feeding schedule, their human bonding time. So there's not a lot of chaos. And we find that any changes in household activity or membership can impact their FIC so it can cause flare-ups. So if someone's on shift work, um, maybe someone decided to get a new pet, or if we have someone that's moved in or one of the one of the children of the household has moved out to go to university, all of these things can trigger stress in the cat because of the change. So then within that household, in addition to those types of things, we also want to consider the fact that resources need to be available for those cats. So we talk about resources. People understand that cats need multiple litter boxes in the household, especially if there's more than one cat. But we also need to look at resources like their feeding stations and water and where they sleep and scratch posts that scratch posts that are available to look at through windows so that they can see what's going on outside. Those are all resources that cats 
want to use. And if there's more than one cat in the household, um, they're going to want to share and that can cause anxiety between the cats. So that can contribute as well. The last thing that I talk to clients about is environmental stimulation or mental stimulation or environmental enrichment. Um, we always think cats should be happy in our house just because we give them everything they need and they can lounge and just be lazy all day long. But the reality is cats are hunters. And so hunters need to be mentally stimulated. And what we're asking them to do is just eat food out of a bowl when we put it in front of them. But they really need playtime. They need hunting time. They need toys. And even feeding puzzles, which are becoming a lot more popular, are helping people to stimulate their cat's brains, which reduces their anxiety level. And let's just talk about the residual effect of our reduced anxiety level while we're watching our cats play with feeding toys. I mean, come on. it's There is nothing more fun, relaxing, and stress-reducing than watching your cat play. It's absolutely a lot of fun. And I think a lot of clients uh, get really excited when their cats sort of graduate to the next level of complexity, you know, going from that simple cup and knocking it over to get the kibble out of it to some of those more fancy schmancy ones that are available online. Um, and people start posting videos of their cats. Like, look how smart my cat is. <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to say exactly. They love to talk about, oh, my cat's the smartest. Um, I do some cat coaching and we, you know, they'll, they will tell me how complex they hide the feeder mice and feeder eggs and say, I, I knew there was no way my cat was going to find it. I couldn't believe how quickly they found it. Um, they really, it really builds that human animal bond and that emotional uh, bonding, right? Because we're anthropomorphizing, of course, but cats are also like, thank you because you're fulfilling my needs, reducing my stress. And it's at the end of the day, just, I just think it's the most fun thing. I can't, I, I can't get enough of my cat, no matter how old they get there. They're, they're eight week old kittens again, when they get a little fun toy that they like and they're playing. Um, and, and I know, Never, I never get sick of it. In fact, I always kind of laugh at like the hours of the exact same thing on my phone that I just like record and record and record because every time it happens, it's just yeah, I have the same problem, right? <laughs> we, right, we're, we're all cut from the same cloth, but you know that's what makes kitties great, and we want to help our clients understand how wonderful that bond can be instead of being mad and frustrated because inappropriate elimination is happening. So. I want to, of course, now from the veterinary side, dive a little bit into the treatment side and preventative measures, all of those things. And so I guess the first thing I want to know is what's late and great in treatment? Because, I mean, this is an area I feel like that's always getting attention and it's it's changes regularly. We have some really exciting approaches to treatment nowadays with FLUTD and FIC in particular. We have an increased understanding of the role that stress and anxiety plays in urinary tract conditions. So for example, feline idiopathic cystitis or FIC is the most common cause of feline lower urinary tract disease. And we know the conditions like FIC have direct links to stress and anxiety. So there are several ways that we can help resolve stress and anxiety in cats. And really the first is to take a good look at the cat's environment and resources. So if a cat is living in an environment that promotes stress, such as a multi-cat household, or the cat has limited resources, such as litter boxes available, they are more likely to be stressed. We can work directly with our clients to improve quality of life. And while we're working on this, we also have the option to consider diets that promote good urinary health, such as the Hills CD MultiCare, as well as diets that are designed to reduce stress. So a good example of such a diet would be Hill's CD stress. In some cases, we may need to consider other anti-anxiety supplements such as casein or L-theanine. And lastly, if the situation still requires additional attention, I may prescribe anti-anxiety medications for my patients. And those would include drugs such as fluoxetine or what we know as Prozac. 
And with all of these tools in our locker, we actually have a much better chance of helping a cat with FLUTD. So I guess it makes me think about prevention. So what about, I guess I know if we have these cats that are regular suspects. <laughs> and then we can kind of trace a pattern, right? Stress-related, you, you know, the owner traveled or, you know, there was some major change or company came or something. How much do you think we should be getting in front of this preventatively and differentiate for me between when they have a history and when they don't? Like, should we say, oh, you're, you have family coming for Christmas. Let's do these preventative measures to reduce stress so we don't get there? Or do, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so I think that's a good way to differentiate. So if we already know a cat's had FIC and they're they're one of those cats that just quite simply doesn't handle stress and change very well, then we have to work with that client to say, hey, like when you know changes are coming up, like you said, a holiday or someone's coming home from university for the summer, then we may have to consider changing that cat's medication dosages or adding medications during and immediately after the stressful event. But when we're talking about cats in general, you know, as a as someone in the AFP who is such a cat person, one of the things that we're really moving towards with cats, and I get very excited about this, is actually understanding how cats feel and thinking about how they feel. And so I really try to educate my clients, even with their kittens, on what are you providing in the home? Do you understand your cat is a hunter? And these are the things that what we call the five freedoms or the freedoms that the cat needs to have in its environment to feel like it's living a safe and happy life. And I guess this makes me think of a great place to talk about the Hills, um, hillspet.com stressometer. I mean, Hills is, it brought us this podcast today, but this is a really awesome tool I think everybody should know about, right? If we're talking to our clients about stress and engaging stress, do we send them to the stressometer? I, I think having a tool like that is really great because again, I think if we mentioned earlier that sometimes clients just completely roll their eyes at me and can't wrap their head around the fact that their cat might be stressed. So something like that online where they can go and actually assess it is going to be really helpful to them recognizing, accepting, and then being able to move forward with stress management. All right. And then, you know, I can't help but ask because I personally love complementary therapies. And so where do these fall in? What do we know about, you know, FIC or, you know, feline lower urinary tract disease? Either case, what are we doing in complementary therapies? I know like cranberry was a thing for a while. Where are we at there? So I think I mentioned just briefly, like we do have some non-medical types of medications so that have anti-anxiety, like we have um, L-tryptophan and casein or milk products that are also in some of these foods that are available as well. So these complementary products really to me are helping the cats with their stress levels. And we use them a fair bit in my practice and they do help some cats a lot. So they can be really impactful, both as a prescription or also when we feed them these foods so that the foods like the CD stress that actually contain L-tryptophan and hydrolase casing can actually reduce their stress levels and thereby reduce their flare-up of their urinary tract signs. So those kinds of options are really nice. And like I said, one of the things that I do with my practice is I really don't reach for those things like Prozac or Alprazolam until I've explored all of those options. And I can honestly count on my two hands how many cats uh, that have urinary tract disease that I have on Prozac or Alprazolam. There are very few of them because we're managing with these alternative therapies and environmental enrichment. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And you're doing it as a whole comprehensive treatment. I mean, it makes a, it makes a lot of sense to me. Okay, it brings me to my keep it brief segment. There's really no pressure here. We never really keep it brief. But I think I wanted to take you back to that conversation when we're talking about 
clients in this kitten visit? What do you talk to them about as risk factors, indications, patterns for concerns? Like give us your elevator pitch. Cause like we talked about, it's a struggle, right? You don't have enough time to do all this. So you've got that brand new kitten. What's that conversation look like for our practitioners? So when I see kittens um, in that brand new kittens visit, I really like to try and get an assessment of what their environment is currently like and what it might be like in the future. And I try to educate clients to let them know what their kitten needs, both as the kitten and a growing into an adult cat for proper resource management. So we talked about having access to all of those resources, uh, litter boxes, water, food, environmental enrichment. And then, you know, what, what constitutes a quality diet? Because that can go a long way also to reducing their urinary tract risks. If they have a male kitten, I do spend a fair bit of time you know, trying to reemphasize over and over again that if something happens with their cat and signs of blockage occur, that that's potentially fatal and that they shouldn't be just, you know, waiting to see what happens um, and they should always call us. Uh, So I definitely do make sure that owners of male kittens are aware of that as they move forward. So the other thing that I always try to assess is whether there are other cats in the environment, because if there are other cats in the environment, the interaction with this new kitten is potentially going to be a really concrete factor in how things go and that other cat may also be have urinary tract issues as a result of them introducing a kitten into the household Um, so i always look at those types of potential stress and then i circle back to that resource management because if they have more than one cat in the household they have changed the dynamics by adding that ankle biting little kitten um, and that can lead to a lot of issues (laughs) Isn't that the truth, right? Well, I appreciate that so much. You know, I think this is great information to kind of bring that conversation to the forefront, make sure we're doing best practices and staying up to date with something that's very common and regular, but absolutely changing and advancing on a day-to-day basis. We also want to ask you, what are your favorite additional resources we should send people to? So we have uh, some additional resources. I think that we have linked here for the clinician's brief is our hillsvet.com slash urinary and that stressometer. But one of my, also my favorite resources is from the American Association of Feline Practitioners, which is the catfriendly.com website. And that thing is, that website is so wonderful for all things cats. So anybody who is a cat owner can check that out. I send my clients to it routinely. It just covers a lot of different things, including developing that ideal cat. So we we often talk about cat-friendly practice, but we also have cat-friendly homes. And by going and learning what what is involved in a cat-friendly home, we actually can reduce our cat's stress levels and then reduce the chances of them having urinary tract issues. That's perfect. I love that so much. Thank you for those resources. And thank you again to Hills for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you, Dr. St. Dennis, for joining us and all this great information. And I am sure we'll be having you back for more conversation before too long. Thanks, Becky. Take care. Thanks again to today's guests for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief, the podcast is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.